The Tom Woods Show, episode 2023. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Hey, folks, chances are, if you're listening to this podcast, you are surrounded by irrational, panicked people who think you're a terrible person because you don't want to lock everybody in their houses. No amount of reasoning appears to accomplish anything. And not to mention the media has done nothing but stoke fear and fail to provide context. Well, one of the many benefits you get as a supporter of The Tom Woods Show is membership inside The Tom Woods Show Elite. Recently migrated off Facebook, so if that was holding you back, no longer. This group will keep you sane and informed, and as an added bonus, it won't accuse you of wanting to kill your grandmother. Join me in there at supportinglisteners.com. Hey everybody, Tom Woods here, joined today by John Grove, who is associate editor of Law and Liberty, which is a great blog, by the way, I highly recommend to you. We've talked to at least one other author over there, but it's always interesting and thought-provoking. And there's a piece I want to call to your attention. I'll link to it on the show notes page, which of course is tomwoods.com slash 2023. And it's called A Maxim for Power Skeptical Conservatism. There's a lot of important food for thought here for both conservatives and libertarians, particularly in light of some of the conversations we're hearing among frustrated conservatives and frustrated libertarians these days. So I want to talk to the author, John Grove, about it. So John, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. What I have been coming across lately, and it's not like I can't understand why people feel frustrated, but the thinking is something like this, that unless you're going to put forth what they would consider to be a robust conservatism that does not shrink from the, the use of power, What's happening is you have a left wing that knows very much what it wants and is very much prepared to use power to implement that. And then on the other hand, you have people who are stuck holding these abstract principles that say that, well, we, we can't exercise power the way the left does. We have some principles, and it means that we have to be hands-off when it comes to the following issues. And they're afraid that the result will be, if you have a tug-of-war between one side that's trying to be neutral and adhere to its principles, and another side that just says, when we get power, we're going to exercise it good and hard, it's not difficult to see who's going to win in that kind of tug-of-war. But now you've come along and are kind of throwing a little bit of cold water on that way of thinking. Talk to me about that. Sure. Yeah. I think that describes it pretty much the way I see it too. You see that argument all the time that if conservatism continues to kind of be, as I, you know, the word I use here, skeptical about power, then, you know, one side's going to win out because the left isn't skeptical about the use of power. And my piece, my basic argument is that it's basically a matter of kind of selling one's soul a little bit that one of the major principles, you know, maxims of, American conservatism through most of the, the latter part of the 20th century was that there are certain things that you simply can't accomplish with power very well. And if you try to do it through the use of government power, especially centralized government power, you end up undermining yourself. So good, valuable things in society that you want to see preserved end up uh, kind of being distorted when they become objects of political passions and when you try to kind of mold them through the use of, of centralized power. So I'll give a few examples of that. The one I use most often being education, that if you have wars over education, over who's going to be in control, who's going to shape American education, you, you wind up losing sight of the whole purpose of education, the value of education, of kind of pointing 
people towards good and, and true things as it becomes a kind of political contest. So that's one of the kind of core arguments I make here in, in, in this paper is that um, the more you try to utilize power in certain areas of human life, the more you're just going to end up shooting yourself in the foot and, and undermining those very valuable areas of life. Well, let's take a specific example when it comes to education, the idea of a national curriculum of some sort. Let's say a national history curriculum. I could very well imagine somebody on the right saying, look, the left wing has in mind, I mean, they have in effect a national curriculum because every textbook I see seems to (laughs) put forth the same sorts of ideas, but they have an agenda. They know exactly what they want to be taught and how it should be taught. And wouldn't it be better if we countered that, not with some mealy mouth stuff about, uh, well, we don't believe in national curriculum, but instead robustly coming out to the public square and saying, here is the national curriculum we should have, and it should teach the following things. What's the potential pitfall of that? Well, the obvious one is that you get it wrong in some ways. And of course, there are even conservatives who have used certain language and, and certain narratives about American history that aren't necessarily correct. And so if you genuinely value education, you're going to be very concerned about the potential of getting it wrong. But beyond that, also, I think you open up not the possibility, but I think you guarantee that education will always be, and not just education generally, but specific curriculum, you know, what is being taught from day to day in in your own child's school is always going to be this political battleground. And so I'm coming at it from this perspective of that you know, valuable things in life can't be perpetual political battlegrounds. You have to have something in mind that's leading to some sort of political peace. And so like with education, you know, I'm a big proponent of school choice, which still has a certain you know, political element to it, but, it, but it puts several, you remove yourself by several degrees from politics, uh, from you know, what, what's being taught day to day in your kid's classroom and politics so that you can you know, hold out this possibility that, you know, we're not going to be constantly battling politically over what is going to be taught in in my kid's school instead, right? I have the choice to send my kid to the school I want to contribute to that school as kind of an institution to kind of be part of that community of people who are thinking about curriculum, thinking about what should be taught and what shouldn't be taught and kind of really contributing to that as as a citizen rather than simply as kind of a partisan. I sometimes try to say that as a practical matter, even if we leave aside all other considerations, as a practical matter, I don't think my side is likely to win a battle like this. And I think that's in large part because if I look at, let's say, a conservatism like that of Russell Kirk or people around him, Kirk was not a universalist. He didn't think that natural rights needed to be spread around the world. I think he felt like, was it Nathaniel Hawthorne? Somebody said something like, a state might be, even the state is kind of too large, but about as large a place as the human heart can wrap itself around. And so conservatives tend to be more focused on hearth and home and on localities and on face-to-face relationships and much, much less on abstractions like the proletariat or the nation or whatever. Now, obviously there are exceptions to this, but I think a Kirkian kind of conservatism is less likely to be interested in molding the entire country as it is in saying, well, you'd see what you can do in your neighborhood and I'll see what I can do in mine. So we're not the sort of people who are going to be in the education bureaucracies to begin with. Right. So I would rather say just defund them and defang them 
rather than say, well, let's see if we can get as many people in there as they have. Right. Absolutely. I, I agree entirely. So the the essay was kind of prompted by this line I read in the book Original Intentions by Mel Bradford, who I think broadly speaking is is very much in the kind of mid-century Kirky and mold traditional conservatism. And Bradford basically makes the case for the American Constitution as what he calls a nomocratic constitution. And he's he's drawing from Michael Oakeshott, British conservative philosopher Michael Oakeshott, who makes this distinction between nomocratic and teleocratic or, or telecratic political regimes. And the big difference is that, that the teleocratic regime or the teleocratic approach is one that really believes the purpose of politics, the purpose of the state and of law is to mold, shape, guide, and direct towards proper ends. And then the nomocratic constitution is is not. It's more internal looking. It's concerned with how we live with one another, kind of the terms of the current terms of coexistence. And so what you were saying there about kind of trying to shape the nation and create this kind of uniform sense of everybody kind of marching in the same direction is very much, I think, the idea that I'm kind of in opposition to here, for sure. That distinction between those two types of constitution, I think, is at the heart of so much of the divide in America, even to this day. And I think you can even trace it throughout much of U.S. history. So I think Bradford really hit on something important there. And then you cite, more recently, Christopher Caldwell. You have a paragraph where you say this, Christopher Caldwell. Now, this is this is like uh, the third rail the third rail, it's like the 12th rail of politics to say this. But I think this is obvious to anybody, sympathizer or not. I think this should be obvious by now. You say that he has recently advanced the controversial, but I think reasonable thesis that the Civil Rights Act's guarantees of social equality wound up giving the federal government the power to control every corner of American life, including personal speech and thought through concepts like hostile work environments, disparate impacts, and affirmative action programs. So even when you have the state is such a is so difficult to control that even when it's engaged in what appear to be the most benign functions, it's simply trying to guarantee some level of reasonable dignity to everybody, or it's trying to enforce uh, religious freedom or this or that, somehow it's able to twist that from a protection against wickedness into a positive crusade to crowbar its way into society and into one institution after another to make sure it conforms to an egalitarian agenda. Right, yeah. So I'm not sure if we've actually mentioned the maxim that I use in the essay. So the maxim that I cite from Bradford is that the power to guarantee turns quickly to into a power to control. That struck me like a thunderbolt because that sums it up. Right. In fact, in fact, I, this paper wouldn't have been written if I hadn't have just kind of happened to be stumbling upon that uh, chapter in Bradford. And it struck me like a thunderbolt, too. I thought this is the sort of thing that has to be recognized. And, and you know, what you, you mentioned about Caldwell and the Civil Rights Act is, is the same kind of idea that justified in terms of right, guaranteeing, right, as you say, a certain, uh, certain minimum levels of dignity within society. I mentioned the due process clause of the 14th Amendment. Here you just have a clause of the Constitution that's looking to basic legal procedures are protected, right? Due process of law. But anytime you have a concentrated power whose job it is to guarantee these things, it necessarily means they get to define them because that's their responsibility, right? If it's my job to guarantee something, I have to define what it is. 
and then go out and, and do whatever I think is necessary. So you have the Supreme Court then taking something even as benign as the due process clause, which of course is due process is a vitally important part of, of any constitutional society. But you have the Supreme Court going out and saying, well, you know what, we're going to define this in a way that is incredibly expansive, right? covers all sorts of substantive policies and use this as a way to control local governments, to control activity in any corner of the nation. So same thing goes with the Civil Rights Act. Again, the Civil Rights Act had this kind of basic goal of non-discrimination. And yet then you see things kind of springing out of the Civil Rights Act that today now amount to a positive command to racially discriminate right? uh, for the same purposes of, of kind of guaranteeing that. So in all those different areas of the Constitution, the Civil Rights Act, lots of lots of other areas, you see that kind of phenomenon of we put our trust in the central government to guarantee certain things, but really what that always is going to do is, is wind up increasing their power to kind of control and, and manipulate the society that they govern. I want to read a quick passage here from your piece. You say, so this new conservatism would have government guarantee even more things, family income, social media fairness, economic production, the policies of private businesses, the morals of an increasingly decadent society, even, for a few, piety. The problem, we are told, is just a matter of misguided priorities. Shouldn't the law and the state support and guarantee the vital social elements of a good human life? Now, I've been asked that by my non-libertarian right-wing friends for, you know, as long as I can remember, that exact question. And then you go on to say, but while it's often put in terms of support for or reinforcement of beneficial and virtuous social habits, the post-liberal vision quickly gives way to control. After all, a peaceful political order in which people and associations have the freedom to build up civil society does not guarantee that virtue will take root. People can have the freedom to pursue human goods and yet turn their backs on them. Rulers then must have the authority not just to provide an environment that allows for human flourishing, but to define the good life, incentivize certain behaviors, and punish those whose choices would undermine it. And I know, even I feel a bit of the temptation of that sometimes in moments of frustration. But I feel sure that people advocating this are going to be unhappy with the outcome. But now let me say, though, for the sake of, uh, let's play devil's advocate here for a minute. For the longest time, libertarians, and even I would say most conservatives would say, let's say we've discovered that there's some private business that makes what appears to us to be an unreasonable demand of its employees. We say, well, the way you deal with that is you have a free market economy where people are free to change their sources of employment as they wish. And over time, that particular business is going to have to pay workers a premium to get them to stay there rather than just leave for some other firm. So we would make that type of argument. But now we are here we are in the middle of this uh, COVID fiasco, and there are a lot of conservatives and libertarians who are very unhappy about vaccine mandates you know, by private employers. Now, leaving the government out of it, there are nevertheless private employers, for example, who are still going forward with their mandates, even though the OSHA mandate is bogged down in the courts. Are we going to say that uh, we couldn't say just this once, just this once? Because we can see that there is a tyrannical regime with tyrannical intentions ruling over us and that these sorts of businesses are in some way acting in concert with them or conniving at this by having these sorts of mandates. Couldn't we say, well, if they're going to have the government impose vaccine mandates, then we can have the government forbid them. 
like what would what would a um, a Michael Oakeshott type of conservative say to that? Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, a couple things. One, you know, that justice once, you know, usually doesn't work out that well. <laughs> Limits on government power always need people who are consistently standing up for them, and that's hard enough to maintain in normal times. So there's always a difficulty when you say justice once that it's not going to be just this once. And you you have to think about it in terms of what are we replacing it with? So there are all sorts of things that, that are frustrating, right? I don't think businesses should have vaccine mandates for their employees. And I do think, especially the longer this goes, I think they're going to, you know, the market disincentives that you mentioned will probably become more powerful. But you always have to think of, in terms of what are we replacing it with? It's not just somebody magically snapping their fingers and making it so that no employers have these mandates. You're replacing it with somebody else, replacing it with some power that is claiming the authority to make this sort of decision. And other things will fall under that category of right, this sort of decision, right? the things that, uh, that an employer can and can't do. And it might work out this time. right? Uh, maybe the right people will be making the right decisions and choosing correctly. But over time, especially if you've given up really kind of the, you've given up the position of arguing that, you know, our government shouldn't be making this sort of decision. Over time, right, you have the, all the classic problems, the knowledge problems and unintended consequences that are going to come in and be a big problem. So there is always, I think, a temptation, right? That's a natural human kind of inclination to kind of see something you disagree with and, and say, we, we need to, we must do something about this. But part of what I was writing the paper here for, or this essay for, was, was to say, to kind of remind people that you're always replacing that power that the business has to make its decision. You're replacing it with some other power. And whether in the long term that other power is going to be more, uh, more beneficial and more responsive to the needs of reality, I doubt is going to be the case. Well, one of the arguments that I have made for a long time and that I've heard a lot of people make is uh, what kind of precedent are you setting for the future? If you do this, then what happens when people you don't like wind up getting hold of power? But I think that argument is really weakened these days because the other side doesn't, whether there's a precedent or not, the left is going to exercise power. It doesn't matter. You know, if you say, well, you Trump supporters, you might like it when he's exercising this power, but what happens when Joe Biden exercises it? Joe Biden would exercise it whether or not Trump did. So if we're to say, well, we really shouldn't intervene just this once in this extremity because then in the future, blah, blah, blah. None of that matters to people who want to exercise power. They don't say, well, look, the conservatives exercised it, so now we're going to. They're going to exercise it either way. That's how we went from a limited government to an unlimited one, is that they just decided they wanted the power and they were going to take it. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't think it's the only way to think about it because I think the other way to think about it is just what kind of political order are you are you supporting and i think as you indicated right you see even a lot of people who are tempted to say well justice once we're going to do it by and large don't want a political order in which government is coming in and and directing these sorts of decisions right That's for the most true. part we want to leave this to the market so a lot of it to me is just you know for conservatives what what is the political order that we stand for and when you start kind of right you say, well, just this once, so you know we're going to do it in in this this circumstance and so forth. You you wind up losing sight of the more healthy political order. I think that you have in mind, and and you conservatives from like like you mentioned Russell Kirk, I mentioned Bradford. You know, the, 
that strand of conservatism has always been very open that it's not going to create the society that you necessarily think is going to be perfect, right? That there are going to be things like like this, like right, right, a business requiring vaccine mandates that you don't think is a good idea. But the point is that you're going to lose some of those battles, but you're you're fighting for a better political order. And that's that's really what concerns me more than any particular policy is I think the right is going in a direction with this kind of this vision of being comfortable using power where the conception of political order that they're promoting and what they're saying, this is conservative, isn't really what I think is a conservative political order, right? So I kind of think of it in terms of that. What are we promoting as the type of political order that that is conservative? And this is what, if we had our druthers, this is what the type of society we would live under. I think for most instinctive conservatives, it's not going to be the society of, of government wielding a whole whole lot of power. So I think a lot of times when you start doing kind of just this once, you eventually just kind of erode what your vision is for for the political order. And that's kind of my concern with the big government conservatism, more right. so than any one particular area of policy. Right, right, right. This is a hard period of time we're living through right now. And I think a lot of old slogans don't ring as true for some people anymore. But when I see conservatives or libertarians who say, oh, well, you see what we're living through right now and the triumph of the left through all our institutions goes to show that the old way of, of doing things just doesn't work. Well, I mean, I understand their frustration. I do. And on the other hand, I haven't been part of that way of doing things. I, I don't feel like the political opposition in America has, I think it's been pretty toothless for most of the 20th century. I think it's been mostly just go along with the mm-hmm. the existing trends. And so, yeah, I agree that doesn't work, but I feel like a really robust alternative hasn't even been tried. And particularly, I think it's 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 urgently necessary to understand. We don't want, now, leave aside, the vaccine thing is a separate matter. We don't want the U.S. Constitution, we don't want to have a constitution that purports to tell us what the, what the good life is and what goods we need to preserve are. We don't need a constitution for that. We have religion for that. We have philosophy for that. We have whatever our own individual consciences for that. But I don't want a group of politicians who, you know, th- for at least the past hundred years have not distinguished themselves in their own moral uprightness. Mm-hmm. I don't want them coordinating some general movement toward virtue in America. I don't want to take instruction from them. I don't want them telling me what the purpose of life is. If they exist at all, it's simply to maintain order so that within that order, communities and families and the various spontaneous associations of people can work these things out for themselves. The state exists not to take a position on this. Now, I I have traditionalist listeners and monarchists who will say, but that is the role of the state, statecraft as soulcraft. I just feel like, again, especially after the French Revolution, when you see what the state can do, I feel like it's better just take your chances with influencing the area of the country that you can and the people you can, rather than attempt to take on some nationwide project of moral uplift, because that is going to fall out of your hands and you're going to be sorry that that was ever contemplated. You simply want to be as modest as possible with political power, because even when you try to exercise it for your stated intentions, it's going to wind up backfiring. So even you yourself thinking, well, this must be the way to go. I guarantee you're going to be disappointed. Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, another thing I'll just add on to that is a lot of times the rhetoric is 
that comes from this more kind of national conservatism, this idea that we we need to really kind of you know, robustly chart out the course for the nation. A lot of the rhetoric often kind of suggests, well, if if you're skeptical about power and you're skeptical, you know, in the way that you know we are talking here, well, you're not a fighter, right? This is the time to stand up and fight. Is often kind of the the language that you hear, and so it's only kind of a sign of weakness. But again, this just kind of goes back to my previous comment about what is your vision of political order? And there's all sorts of things that people who are skeptical of using power should and could be kind of fighting for politically, right? There, like you said, there's, you know, the political opposition to the left has, you know, not exactly been great for the last several decades. And I don't think it's because they've been skeptical of using government power. I think it's because they haven't really tried to kind of promote a vision that maybe gets us back to something like a, you know, nomocratic constitutional order that is really seriously decentralizing power sending you know authority back to states to communities to associations um, and to, and to individuals you know conservatism inc as they say didn't really follow necessarily russell kirk and bradford and richard weaver and some of these other kind of conservatives that i think got this issue right they followed uh, in other directions many of which were kind of teleocratic directions right you know neoconservatism for instance which today is national conservatives hate neoconservatives, all right? But, you know, both of them are essentially teleocratic visions. Neoconservatism concentrated authority and concentrated power. And you got things like, you know, foreign policy of, of kind of spreading the American way and the American idea around the world. You got domestic policies like no child left behind. So it's not as if we've had decades of conservatives fighting for decentralization and, you know, the political order that I you know, I think is better for decades. And now we have to give up because it's not working. Like you said, right? It hasn't, we haven't really been trying all that hard for a while. I was looking at your archive at uh, Law and Liberty, which by the way is lawliberty.org. And you've written a number of essays on, let's say, not the most fashionable political thinkers. You know, for example, Robert Nisbet, but also John C. Calhoun. Is there a handful of people you think that those of us who would be interested in my program or what you have to say should be reading more of some of these older writers? We'd, we'd be better off if people read X, Y, and Z? Yeah, I mean, on on this question, you know, I think we've hit a lot of them. You hit uh, Kirk. I mean, I think Kirk is, a lot of people can kind of interpret Kirk in a little bit different ways on, on this issue of kind of nomocratic political order. But Kirk is one. Bradford's Original Intentions is probably the best I would rank it as probably the best book on the American Constitution that I've read. Robert Nisbet is fantastic on this question of of associations and the vision of a society that most of these contentious issues are worked out in community with one another. But Nisbet is also really good. I did just do an essay on Nisbet for Law and Liberty a few months ago. He's really good on this sense of the way we've kind of moved towards a kind of collectivist understanding of the nation and and what direction do we want to take the nation. And he kind of laid that out in this book called The Present Age, which I reviewed for Law and Liberty recently, where he, he kind of indicates right, that our experience in war translated over into domestic politics. And I think there's there's so much to that. And we, we so often use the rhetoric of war in our domestic politics, right? Mobilizing society to achieve certain goals and certain aims, things that you have to do in war. 
but maybe things that we shouldn't be doing in in our domestic politics. So Nisbet is really good on that, on on kind of centralization and the idea of the American nation and what exactly that is. So uh, those would be the big 20th century conservatives, I would I would say. On the others, then of course coming from Great Britain, then I've already mentioned Oakshot. The other person that's really good on this is Roger Scruton. And Roger Scruton, unlike Oakshot, isn't isn't usually seen as a kind of libertarian adjacent, right? He's he's very culturally conservative, very focused on on cultural matters. But Scruton's conception of political order is very much along the lines of Oakshot and what we've been talking about here, that right, the role of law and politics is 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 internal looking. It's it's we see it from the inside. We we create rules for ourselves that that kind of govern us only in the sense of that it kind of prescribes the way we're going to interact with one another, but it doesn't tell us what direction we're supposed to go. It doesn't give us our ultimate end, our ultimate purpose, but it's in many ways self-governing kind of in that same way that Oakshot had in mind. And and Hayek is also certainly somebody to think about on that issue as well. I just did an interesting episode with Matt Kibbe on a paper he's just done called Pandemic Socialism. And I thought it was going to be about, yeah, you know, way governments have intervened in economies during this period, but it, it really wasn't so much that. He was looking at Hayek's book, The Counter-Revolution of Science, and applying it to the scientism of the past uh, nearly two years here, and warning about a technocratic elite exercising central control, not just economically, but making all kinds of decisions. And and of course, Im- Im- not even implicitly, but explicitly imposing their own personal values on everybody. It's one thing to have some scientific knowledge, but it's quite another to jump from that to saying, therefore, your top priority has to be X or Y. Well, who are you to tell my top priority is? That's based on my own particular conception of the good and my own assessment of the circumstances. It's not scientific to say that the only thing I need to prioritize is the one virus. So Hayek has a lot of contemporary relevance, I think, in the present circumstances. And I mean, I think even... It's more important to read that even than I'm going to be unpopular here, but I actually think the road to serfdom, I'm going to actually say it. I think it's mostly obsolete. I think most of the arguments in there just don't apply anymore. Like we're not dealing with states that own the means of production or anything right. like that. I, I I think he makes too many concessions in it, and I think uh, it just doesn't ring current really for me. So I I like some Hayek. I'm kind of only mildly impressed by other Hayek. I would say the same thing. Yeah, I'm, I'm not as expert on Hayek as some other thinkers, but uh, uh, of what I've read, I would say I'm, I'm about the same. Yeah. yeah <laughs> I, I have not read the book on scientism, though. So No, but, it's, really but you can imagine how it would fit into the, the conversations that we're having oh, right now. Oh, for sure. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the, I mean, the very idea of a kind of technocratic elite is, is the assumption that, or underlying that, is the assumption that we need people to kind of direct us towards are predetermined goals that these people know how to get us where we are. And you think of, yeah, with COVID, I mean, you get that language of kind of mobilizing society, just like I was saying with, with the war rhetoric, right? COVID rhetoric has been a, a very much a war rhetoric. We need to mobilize society. We need to go to every corner of society, the preachers and the teachers and the you know shopkeepers, everybody must do their part and, contribute to the effort and that sort of thing. So maybe that gets back again to what I said with Nisbet and, and the this, this sense that we've kind of imported war, our understanding of fighting a war into our politics, which is a dangerous thing. Yeah, indeed, indeed. 
And of course, that's the idea, the language of mobilization is present it just over and over. I mean, you can see it in the New Deal. We have to mobilize the way we did against war. We see it with the virus, we see it with poverty, you see it with drugs. And it's a material and ideological mobilization of the sort that a teleocratic regime is going to engage in. And I don't want to have any part of that. I don't want a left-wing teleocratic regime or a right-wing teleocratic regime because neither one of them will ever leave you alone. They'll always be embarking on some project that can never be completed because it's elusive, I mean, whether it's right. human virtue. Well, human beings are never, ever going to be perfect. Or whether it's equality on the left. No matter how much you try, there will always be inequality. Even if you get perfect equality materially, as soon as people start interacting again, they're going to be unequal all over again. And so this is the sort of thing that states love because it guarantees permanent employment for a sinecure class and it guarantees the, the state's permanent invasion of our minds, that, that it, it, uh, it occupies a central place in our minds as the organizing factor of society, that where would we be without it? We needed to direct these big mobilizations. But then you have the forbidden thought, what if we don't need to have these big mobilizations mm -hmm. in the first place? That, that's the thought they can't allow you to have. They can let, they'll let left and right argue about how the mobilization should be carried out. But as soon as, for example, a Ron Paul comes along and says, maybe we shouldn't do this mobilization, then he has to be blacked out, smeared, <laughs> disappeared down the memory hole, because right. that's not how the game is played. Yeah. Yeah, that gets to, you know, one of, one of the areas or one of the ideas in the essay that we haven't talked much about, but that I did note was that you always have to remember what the incentives are for those who are, who are guaranteeing. And that there's a whole host of political incentives that this is why things get distorted. This is why something like education is always going to be distorted if it's a constant source of political conflict is because the people who are claiming to guarantee these things, the people that are claiming to defend certain good things, and whether it's on the left and claiming to defend health and you know, public health or on the right, claiming to defend kind of healthy American education, whatever it is, they have all sorts of political incentives, right? That are going to make them use this for their own purposes, right? And you see that all the time. People who claim to be you know, utterly committed to this cause, at the end of the day, the cause oftentimes ends up controlling them, right? They can't give this cause up. They have to make use of this cause for their own purposes because of the incentives they have. And that's why I would I'd rather as much as possible have a, have a political order that that allows most of these valuable things to be decided by individuals you know, associations, localities, and so forth, where those incentives just aren't as strong, the incentives to kind of distort and manipulate and make use of these, these important, you know, things in our society. Do you have a personal website that we can look at, or should we direct everybody to lawliberty.org? Yeah, I don't have a personal website, uh, lawliberty.org. Um, I do have a Twitter. You can follow me at uh, John G. Grove one, I think. I'm not I'm not particularly active on Twitter, so don't expect too much there. But. All right, I'll, I'll dig it up and make sure it's the right one. And I'll, okay, I'll put right. it on the show notes page. So that's tomwoods.com slash 2023. I'll have the blog, lawliberty.org. I'll have your Twitter. I'll put all that stuff up there. And uh, well, I've, we've never spoken or corresponded before. In fact, I don't, we don't think we even corresponded here. My assistant wrote to you. So right. <laughs> uh, it's been a pleasure briefly getting to know you and thank you for the conversation. Yeah, same to you. Yeah, I enjoyed it quite a bit. Thanks so much for having me on. All right, folks, tomorrow on the program, we have a really, really great guest. It's the return of Matt Ridley, who's been on a couple times before. And wow, does he have a fascinating new book called Viral. And in that book, he's tracing out the evidence 
for whether or not a lab leak led to our present catastrophe. And I guarantee you, no matter how closely you've studied this matter, there is a mountain of information you don't yet know about. I found this book absolutely fascinating, really, really enjoyable. And every page, every page had something new for me on it. And I say this as somebody who, as you know, has followed this pretty closely. Really, really interesting and very important work by Matt Ridley and his co-author. So make sure and tune in tomorrow for episode 2024, and I'll see you then. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit TomWoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time. Like the sound of The Tom Woods Show? My audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com.